Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have again to come together as a church to worship you. We want to worship you through seeing how you acted throughout history and all your plans for the future. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would bless this time together as we look into your word to know you more. Praise pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, if you want to flip over to Haggai, we're going to be starting in this small little two-chapter uh, minor prophet. Haggai was um, the first post-exilic prophet. So that means we're um, after the exile to Babylon, and we're taking place really right when Carrie was talking about in the book of Ezra um, especially, um, is where Haggai was a prophet. So the first wave of three was around 50,000. It was led by uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest at the time. So they're part of um, the first return from Babylon, and that gives us um, a, a helpful tool in dating when this is all transpiring. So Haggai is um, my type of guy. I mean, if you read through this book, he is month, day, year. I mean, he dates it precisely so we know exactly when this is happening in history, which is awesome. It's super helpful so that we know the temperature of the people, what's going on circumstantially and in the hearts of the audience that he's writing to. So Haggai is writing to um, uh, specific leaders um, to the nation of Israel, specifically Zerubbabel and Joshua, um, also to the leaders of the priests, uh, but also to all the Jews, all the returned Jews of the first wave of 50,000. So um, that's his audience, and the context is um, all these Jews that have returned from exile are exposed. They're, they're feeling threatened, and they're commanded to build the temple, but um, years have gone by, so they've returned, and it's about 15 years in from the return that we actually see um, God call Haggai to address some issues that have come up with his people. The genre that we're dealing with is it's a prophetic book. It's very sermon-like. So as you're reading through, um, you'll see the, the flavor of a sermon as he's using God's word to address the hearts of people, as well as um, he's actually kind of in a debate a little bit. He's saying, you say this, but this is what God's word says. And so you see this back and forth, this dialogue almost, that makes it really easy to understand who's speaking and what's going on. So quick overview um, of the book we're going to run through, since we only have two chapters in this one. Um, we're going to start out with the first section. So in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, um, you can call it living the good life. Um, they're being rebuked by God for choosing to live under their own priorities, their own goals. Um, as Carrie so well put it, they're, they're more worried about shiplap in their houses than God's house that lays in ruins. And so that's the rebuke that God lays um, against his people. And I love what um, the prophet uses. He uses this phrase. He says, consider your ways. What a fantastic phrase. Consider your ways. Look at your actions and what they say about you. Look at what God's doing around in comparison to your own heart. Consider your ways. And when you see the breakdown here of what God's doing, he actually is referencing Leviticus 26. He says that he is refusing to bless his people because of their sinfulness and their disobedience and disregard for his will and his plan. So God provides some instructions. So if you're in Haggai chapter 1, look with me at verse 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That's the instruction. That's the priority for his people. He says, think 
then act. Think, then act. And we see here an important piece when we're talking about the temple specifically is what is God's purpose in the temple? Why does he want his people to do this? And he says here in verse 7, it is to take pleasure in it that he may be glorified. As we know, that's a theme we see throughout all of scripture, that God's glory is the main purpose of everything he does. That's what he is seeking to show his, his, his holiness and his glory throughout all of history. So we see here that there's a disobedience issue, which with the context of history of Israel, we have to note that there's still an issue. Okay, the physical exile is over, the people are back in the land, but we can still see there's a spiritual exile problem. There's still a heart problem with the people. It didn't resolve the heart issue in God's people. So what we see here next in verse 12 is actually the people's response. So look with me at verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and, the, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, disobeyed the voice of the Lord. We knew it was coming, right? No, that's not what it says. That's what we expect after going through the Old Testament time and time and time again. But we see here a totally different response. We see that they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord, their God, had sent to him. We see a totally different response. And that's what this is. This is a pearl against a very black uh, backdrop that shows us that God's people have responded in a way of obedience. But if you look a little further, you actually see what's even more of a bright light is not just the people's response to this call of repentance, but you actually see God's response to the people. Look further in, in uh, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and he said, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. What we don't see here is God saying, okay, you obeyed, you're responding, finish the temple. Once we finish the temple, I'll see that you really want to obey me, and then we'll address, and then maybe there'll be reconciliation depending on your works and what you do to perform. No, that's not what God says. Immediately, there's immediate forgiveness, immediate reconciliation. Total contrast to his long-suffering patience with their sin and disobedience. There's immediate restoration and reconciliation. And beyond that, there's not just immediate reconciliation, but in 14 you'll see there's actually empowering forgiveness here. He actually stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people to actually accomplish what God has called them to do. He's enabling them toward obedience. And that's what's an amazing theme that we must catch and see is that when God is restoring his people to himself, that he is quick to forgive and that he is empowering them to obey. It's something that comes from God. And that's what we need to catch out of this first chapter is, is this pattern of repentance and obedience. Repentance and belief that God will provide. So, one of the questions that I came across is, if God's presence is with his people, why build the temple? They're already reconciled, right? And that's, in my mind, a, a misnomer, right? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So we don't have to have the temple to have his presence there with his people. He's providing this forgiveness and reconciliation. But we have to remember, as we already noted in verse 7, the purpose of the temple was for God's pleasure and for his glory. So... Moving on to the next section, we have in section number two, God's encouragement 
to his people. God's encouragement to his people. In chapter 2, verses 3, the people were actually becoming discouraged. They were building what seems like a piddly temple compared to what some of the older men were remembering. King Solomon's marvelous, huge temple to the Lord. And they were becoming discouraged. And it seems here in verse 3 almost like it's a little bit of a rub in the face. But if you continue reading, you actually realize that God's calling them to be strong and to actually not have fear of those around, which was plaguing them. They were, they were constantly battling the fear of those around them versus the fear of the Lord. And he calls them individually to the leaders and the priests and also to the people at large to be strong, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, my spirit remains in your presence and fear not. And fear is a really important theme that we're going to touch on here in our, our section of books today. But it's important for us to note it starts here. It starts, not starts here. We see it throughout the Old Old Testament. But this is kind of one of our first triggers that you'll see um, throughout uh, this section of books we're going to be covering. But here we see that God is telling them to be strong and work for I am with you. And the reason is, why, why are they motivated when it seems like this, is, this just pales in comparison, how can this possibly bring glory to God compared to what it was? Well, if we continue down to verse 9, God gives them a picture of what is going to come. What is going to come? A future hope. He says in verse 9, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What God is telling his people is that this is pointing to a future temple. So this theme of temple we see really throughout all of history. Um, we can go all the way back to the tabernacle, which is kind of your mobile temple. Um, you can set up and move with it. And then we see Solomon's temple, um, Zerubbabel's temple here that we'll see. King Herod actually built a temple during Jesus' time. And during the church period, we actually see Christ's church, his, his people are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the future, we'll see also that in the tribulation time, the Antichrist will actually build a temple as well. And then beyond that, there is a millennial temple. That's what we see in Ezekiel that J.D. took us through. Chapters 40 through 48 talks about this marvelous temple, and that's what Haggai is pointing the people to. Say, there is a day coming where there will be a temple more glorious that God will reign in, reign from, and with this there will be greater peace, prosperity, rulership, and blessing in this millennial temple. And that was hope. That was hope for the people during this time that we're going to build um, a smaller temple. In the next section, we see in section three, God's reminder to his people, which really this, this points at a theme of a heart issue. And in this section, um, God uses his word, the law specifically, to, to interrogate or question the priest. He says, hey, there's um, a, a, a ceremonial cleanness and a ceremonial uncleanness. And he says, you know, if something is ceremonially clean, can it be transferred? If it touches something else, does it make it also holy and ceremonially clean? And the priests say, rightly, no, it does not. And then they're asked, if something's unclean and it touches something, does it make it unclean? And they say, yes, it, it does. And what he was trying to point them out to say, sin is contagious and righteousness is not. Sin is contagious, and the Jews have been offering sacrifices while remaining in disobedience, which null and voids the sacrifice. 
They're sitting in their sin and then they're operating under the law thinking that this is pleasing to God. But it's not external obedience. It's a heart submission to God's law that's going to be required. Again, that's, that's this theme we see throughout the Old Testament is that it's a heart issue. There's a heart issue here that has to be solved. And lastly, in section 4 of Haggai, we actually see God's restored promises. So we see here that the people of Israel have returned back to the land. And the question here is, what, where are we at with God's promises? Is he going to keep his word still? Have, have, we, have we strung out far enough his, his patience? Sure, we're back in the land, but we're struggling. We don't see blessing. Um, what, what's going to happen? And here we see um, God speaking through Haggai to confirm his covenant with his people. And he, he confirms this through um, specifically speaking to uh, the governor of Judah at the time, Zerubbabel. And he says this um, at the end of chapter 2. He says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, that's a messianic title, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, representing power and authority. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So we see here a a reestablishment, a reaffirmation of God's Davidic covenant and where the Messiah king that's going to come is going to come through the line of David, specifically now through the line of Zerubbabel. So we see here in Haggai the purpose of this little minor prophet is to remind the people of their primary task to rebuild the temple, which is a key theme throughout scripture that we can track. And we also see here that he's warning them of the consequences of continued disobedience. What's helpful for me when studying book two is if you're taking notes, there's key words that pop out that help you have trigger reminders of when you're going through a book. And some of the key words uh, that you'll find in, in the book of Haggai is consider your ways. Consider your ways. Give careful thought to your life. Consider your ways. And the other key word that um, is really a title that um, I want us to track throughout these three prophetic books that we're going to go through is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. In Haggai, he actually uses the title for um, God as the Lord of hosts 14 times out of 38 verses. That's more than every third verse. He's bringing this up over and over and over again, which means God is the Lord of the armies, these angelic armies. He is able to protect you and sustain you and, and to keep his promises. So this would have been a huge encouragement to the people to know that their God, Yahweh, is the Lord of hosts. So themes we see um, reiterated in Haggai is going to be God's presence in the temple. Um, not in the temple, but and the temple. How those correlate um, in his presence with his people. Also we see God's priorities that lead to blessing. So when, when the people prioritized what God's will was for them in obedience, that blessing came from that. But conversely, discontentment with their situation was the result of displaced priorities. When they weren't obeying God's word as commanded, discontentment arose. They were dissatisfied um, with their life. So the third one I wanted to mention was God's empowering and immediate forgiveness as well, um, as we touched on in chapter 1. It's, it's critically important for us to see that there's a, a, a stark difference between how God is long-suffering and dealing with sin versus God's immediate reconciliation and forgiveness and his empowering forgiveness that he provides. So moving on to Zechariah. Zechariah is um, another 
minor prophet, although some would put it in the major prophet category due to its density and content, uh, not necessarily its length. Um, but Zechariah actually was a comrade with uh, Haggai. Their same time period, Zechariah actually starts preaching about halfway through the book of Haggai. Haggai only covered about four months of teaching. He's probably an older guy. And Zechariah is kind of the young guy um, who's going to be around a little longer. And he's addressing a lot of the same issues. The heart of the people is in the same state. And they're just turning, starting to construct the temple in obedience to the Lord And uh, we see that Zechariah, this uh, priest who's called to be a prophet, um, is addressing the Jews and wanting to emphasize not just the priority of the temple, but also the repentance of the people. The repentance of the people. The genre we're dealing with, again, is very sermon-like, but we also get a lot of visions. If you've ever read through Zechariah, you'll, you'll remember this large section of dreams that all happens in one night, and it's like, how do you get eight dreams in one night? And, uh, but God was wanting to, to show him something that we'll, we'll look at here in a minute. But the first section we'll cover is just the first um, six verses. So the first six verses is really the, the uh, initial introduction of a call to repentance. There's a call to repentance. And you'll see um, in verse 3, he actually is giving an example of the people of old, the fathers of the nation and how he told them this summary statement. And this is, this is also very thematic, okay? He's summarizing what the prophets have been saying over time. So that's a great statement for us to cling to um, when thinking through um, a large bulk group of Scripture. And he says, Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord, of hosts, the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. That's been God's call of repentance throughout the prophets. All of these prophetic books we look, he's constantly presented judgment for sin and a call to repentance for his people, longing for them to return to him and says, if you will return to me, I will return to you. I will be reconciled with you. The next largest section we'll hit on um, Zechariah is actually going to cover the rest of chapter one um, all the way through chapter six, and it's his visions. The visions of Zechariah, and rather than going through and detailing each story, I'm just going to give you the theme. We're going to give you the key that kind of unlocks the code and, and go through and study it yourself. But the theme you'll see in all these visions is God's future purposes for his people Israel. God's future purposes for his people Israel. And just to shotgun these out to you, all eight of them, just you'll see as you listen and hear what God's purposes are, what his plans are for his people, Israel. First one is, God will bless his people with grace and comfort. God will vindicate his people. God will restore his people's land in the future kingdom. God will purify his people for himself. God will rebuild the temple. God will purge sinners. God will remove false religious systems, and God will bring peace and rest to Israel. In all these visions, we see again, you know, God's future purpose for Israel and what he plans to do in the future. And as I've been reading through Zechariah and these books, it's amazing. A lot of times in my own Christian life, I think through the past. I think in our side of history, what Christ has done. He has lived the perfect life I could not. He died the death that I deserved, and he rose again, conquering death in the grave, and I stopped. But there's so much more. 
And we see this as the hope for, for Israel is that he will come again. That is vitally important that Jesus will come again. And he will reign. And that's what the hope is for Israel. And we get to partake in that blessing as well, as, as Paul mentions in Romans. So it's important for us to catch a glimpse of this future kingdom, this future coming. Because as Christians in our day today, we often stop short of the hope we have for the future, for our future king. But what I want to touch on after these visions is, is not just the future purposes for God's people, Israel. But in chapter 6, if you flip over there, chapter 6... He goes through all these visions and showing what the future, the future that God has for his nation. And it's almost as if he, this God brings about an actual event to happen that almost answers how. You know, how exactly are you going to do this, God? We know the plans you have for us. Grace, peace, comfort, purification, purging of sinners. But God, how are you going to accomplish this? How, what's that going to look like a little bit? And what we see in verse 9 is that there's an event that happens that um, the Lord tells Zechariah that there's these um, Jewish people from Babylon uh, that are coming with gifts. And he says, take these gifts and I want you to make a crown. And if you scroll down um, to verse 11, it says, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of who? You think Zerubbabel, right? I mean, he's the leader. Right? He's the, one, he's the governor over Judah. He's the one that's been blessed. He's the signet ring that's going to bring around the, the messianic king. But no, it's not Zerubbabel, as, it, as would be expected for a kingly line. It's actually set on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, wait a minute. We've been through the Old Testament. We've seen how these family ties of these 12 tribes all break out. And God had chosen which tribe to be the priestly tribe? Say it out loud. Levi to be the priestly tribe. Sorry, priestly tribe. Yeah, Levi was the one who the tribe came through. Aaron was the priestly line. So who was the priestly tribe or the, the tribe for the king, the kingly line? Which tribe was that? Judah, right? So we've got the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi, very distinct, right? These are different categories, different roles and responsibilities that God specifically separated out. And here we see a change. This is totally different than what we've seen before. We're seeing that there's a kingly crown placed on the high priest, Joshua, as an archetype. If we keep reading with me in verse 12, it says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. That's a messianic title. For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. That's this messianic temple in the millennium kingdom, that the messianic king that's coming, who's also going to be a priest, is going to build the temple of the Lord. And it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. And shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. Clear as day. There is a big change going on here in, regard, in regards to roles and titles and responsibilities. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And we see this crown actually is taken off of Joshua as a type. And actually put in the temple to remind the people of this, of this event. To say this is what God has planned. This king that is coming. This Messiah for the nation of Israel, who's supposed to rescue them from all the oppression of all the other nations and bring peace, is not just a king, but he's a priest. He's a priest who can solve the heart issues of the people and represent God to the people. 
He's a righteous king. As J.D.'s mentioned to me time and time before, a good theme when you read through the kings, you see how the king goes, goes the nation, right? And they need a righteous king who can make their heart problem, uh, provide salvation and solve their sinful heart problem. So that's a huge, huge highlight in Zechariah for us to remember. Zechariah, we see the priestly king, Messiah. Next section would be um, a section of chapter 7 through 8. And we see these um, sermons, really, where, where Zechariah is addressing, the, again, the sinful heart issues of the people. And what's going on in this part is there's some uh, fasts that the people had established for certain months. And these fasts were supposed to mourn the exile and this horrible period of judgment. But the problem was they, they're asking Zechariah, hey, is this right for us to do? Should we keep doing it? Um, it's not part of the law. It's something we've kind of you know, added in addition. And he says... The real issue here is not um, do or don't do, but what you're doing and the purpose, the motive, the heart behind it is totally wrong. And the reason was because they were mourning the discipline. They were mourning what God's wrath and judgment was for their disobedience, and they weren't actually mourning the disobedience itself. They weren't caring that the sin is what caused them to go into exile. They were caring that there was correction and judgment on them, that that was painful and difficult. There was, there was what was called for um, is repentance. Repentance is what was required. And that's what Zechariah points the people to, to say, repent and believe in these future promises that God will provide. And he will restore his favor as an encouragement to the people. And he wanted to point them again to the hope uh, for the, this future Messiah that was coming. So, the, the last section uh, we see in Zechariah is um, about the messianic future. So Zechariah actually is one of the most um, messianic and apocalyptic books. So end times um, type of books um, in the Old Testament. Right up there probably with Isaiah. Isaiah is probably one of the number ones. And Daniel as well. So these last um, several chapters, chapters 9 through 14... You can kind of break it up, but it's not 100% perfect, so I hate to give you a false breakdown. But mostly there's 9 through 11, that's the first advent of this Messiah when he would come, um, on, speaking from this side of history. And then um, on chapters 12 through 14, you see the Messiah's second advent, when he's coming again um, to rule and reign. So we'll see um, some, some popular or commonly known um, messianic prophecies. And if you flip over to chapter 9, we see the people rejoicing at their king. So in chapter 9, verses 9, uh, we actually see the people say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. There's the implications of a priestly king again. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we see that fulfilled in the New Testament through the Messiah, Jesus. We also see, if you flip over in chapter 12, um, some, some second coming stuff that I want us to look at real quick. Because it is so exciting when you see how much God has communicated about what is coming. And for me personally, how much little time I've thought or spent thinking about Christ coming again and ruling and reigning. It's really cool when you look in chapter 12, you get to see um, specifically how the nation of Israel will view this Messiah. In chapter 12, verses 10, 
He says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, notice there he says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is the response of the remnant, the purification of uh, one-third of the nation of Israel, how they will respond um, at the end of the tribulation when God brings his millennial kingdom. And if you flip over to chapter 13, um, you see again this theme of cleansing and purification in verse 1. He says, um, in regards to the nation of Israel, he says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is God's plan. This is his, his plan for his nation, Israel, that he has chosen, that he has reestablished, reaffirmed this covenant of what he's going to do to fulfill his Abrahamic promises, his Davidic promises, and his new covenant that, that really points us to the heart of man that needs to be solved. And uh, if you look in chapter 14, um, chapter 14 um, actually goes through this geographic shift, which is really cool to think about. To me, that helps me kind of picture a reality of there is a place on this physical earth that God is going to do some seismic activity. I mean, this is literally going to change um, the geographical layout, and he's doing it with a purpose. He's doing it for his millennial kingdom. And in chapter 14, he talks about um, the Mount of Olive and how he's going to split it east to west and tear it north and south. And there's going to be this river that flows, and it's never going to stop flowing, which is unusual for this geographical layout. And he says in verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. God's plan is for glory to be given to his name, and, he, and all of those who are there will worship the king as the Lord of hosts. This is the future we get to look forward to, that we find joy in, that we find hope in. And this was the hope for the nation of Israel as well. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, Paul says in, in Romans um, chapter 11 that if the disobedience of Israel brought about this salvation for the Gentiles, how much more will the obedience, which is going to happen before this, this, this millennial kingdom, how much more will the obedience be a blessing to the nations like God promised in the Abrahamic covenant? So that's, that's really important for us to get, and it's applicable to us it's, it bridges out through God's blessing to branch out to us Gentiles as well. So the purpose of Zechariah is to encourage Israel to continue rebuilding. The other um, two tandem purposes, purposes that I would, I would tag on with that is he's actually focused on challenging Israel to repent and renew obedience to God's law. Um, flipping back to chapter 6, you'll see this. Um, idea that the nation Israel is supposed to cling to at the very end of the chapter he says and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God so he's saying this priestly messianic king that's coming I'm planning on bringing this in and he will reign when the nation obeys and God is going to produce that obedience but that's that's a key ingredient for them and what they're hoping for what they're aimed at and they're targeting um, this, this goal of God's fulfillment um, in his promises. And, and Zechariah is wanting to fill the nation of Israel with courage and with hope in this coming Messiah, priestly king. So again, we see um, a key word that I would um, 
I'm going to reiterate in all these books, is the Lord of hosts. Okay, the Lord of hosts, who's able to accomplish this. In this book, with 14 chapters, there's actually 211 verses, and the Lord of hosts is mentioned 52 times. 52 times he mentions his title as the Lord of hosts, who, who is able to protect who is able to squash these pagan nations with, with their wickedness and sinfulness um, and how they've acted toward Israel, he is going to fulfill these promises. And the strength of the Lord is seen in this title, um, the Lord of hosts. So a theme for us to catch, again, when you think about Zechariah, think about um, a priestly king and think about repentance. Think about a priestly king and thinking about repentance. Repent from your present sins and believe in God's future fulfillment of his past promises. So we've got past, present, future there. It's always helpful when you can summarize the statement that way. Repent of your present sins. Believe in God's future fulfillment of his past promises. Pointing us forward, backwards, and addressing the heart issues of today. So moving forward, we're into our last book. The last book we have um, as our canon is organized in the Old Testament. Um, the prophet Malachi. Malachi is a little further down the road. Um, he wouldn't have been in the same time frame as Haggai and Zechariah, but he would have been more around the time of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah returns um, to the nation of Israel to help them rebuild the wall. And Malachi actually means my messenger, um, and tradition states that he was a member of the great synagogue at this time. So we date this book um, around 430 BC, and I only mention that because um, a pivotal date that um, Old Testament teacher made me remember is 444. 444 is when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, 444 BC. So it's after this point. So the nation of, of Israel at Jerusalem, uh, the temple is built, the wall is set up. And so that is the, the geographical layout right now um, and, and kind of dictates a little bit of the heart of the people. So this is about 100 years after, um, and it's, um, there's, there's really some some deeper sin issues that have come up in regards to the nation of Israel. There's um, temple misuse, priesthood is corrupted, um, marriages with pagan worshipers that were mentioned um, in the, the Ezra and Nehemiah um, walk through, and, and also the neglect of tithes, um, which is part of the Mosaic law uh, for the nation of Israel. So there was rampant disobedience. Externally, at best, it was weak, and internally, it was absolute rejection. So um, the audience for this letter is the priests, the leaders, and the people in Jerusalem, um, which also bridges out to uh, the nation. So um, this genre is very much debate-like. Um, you get almost like a, a script dialogue you can label out to say, God says this, the people say this. You can almost lay it out like a script and have a, a whole play that's, that's run through, which is, again, very helpful um, for us to understand um, how the conversation is going. And it reveals the heart when God asks a question or commands something of people and you see the response. Um, so we see um, there's four sections for Malachi. The first section we see God loves Israel and they are chosen by God. So in this first section he says, I have loved you. And the people's response to God's declaration of love for them, past tense, I've loved you, is how have you loved us? Ugh. You, just, you can smell that type of heart, right? It's just gross. How have you loved us? And God goes through and, and declares how he has chosen them. 
He talks about how Esau and Jacob were brothers. And he says, I chose Jacob. Esau may rebuild, but I will tear it down. But Jacob, I have chosen. I have loved you. I have chosen you to be my people. And we see here in this first section is, is how the people really were despising God's love. They were despising God's love. And if we look further into section two, we see God's rebuke to unfaithful priests. If you look down in chapter one, verse six, um, this could be a key verse in regards to remembering the content and the purpose of the book of Malachi. Chapter one, verse six says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am the master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. There was rampant, um, within the priest, there was rampant irreverency for God. Um, the primary example that he gives is actually of sickly sacrifices. These, these goats or sheep that were uh, promised to be male, the best of the best, and instead they substitute a sickly lamb that got, you know, half mauled by a tiger or something. It's like, well, I'm not going to use it anyway. Here you go, God. Here's a little piece. I got I to gotta satisfy a requirement here. And that's what was going on. The priests were, were accepting these sort of sacrifices rather than leading the people and saying, this is not what God's law says. This is, this is a horrible dishonor to God. And he rightly asked, where is your fear? Of the Lord of hosts. Where is your fear? As we alluded to earlier, fear being an important concept uh, that really Malachi, that's one of his key words, is fear. Fear of the Lord. Um, and if we continue on to the section C, we see God doesn't just rebuke the unfaithful priests, He actually rebukes His sinful people. So again, I'll mention briefly there was marrying of foreign wives, which always led to pagan idolatry. Um, there was a lack of tithing, which was commanded in the law for the nation of Israel. There was a neglect of the needy, social injustice, and they neglected them out of their own greed. Okay? It, was a, it was a love for money rather than a love for God's law. And the problem here was that the people did not fear God. You'll see um, an example of um, this judgment on um, the, the, the heart of the type of people in chapter 3. If you look down chapter 3, verse 5, he gives this long list of the types of people um, who he is drawing near to for judgment. And he lists, um, he'll be, oh, I'll just read it for you. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress three groups of people, the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and then he, he caps it off with kind of a summary statement. He says, and those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's who God's judgment is for. God's judgment is for those who do not fear the Lord of hosts. And that's what was going on. There was an irreverency and a lack of proper fear for the Lord. But rather than just throwing out this word fear, when you're studying through a book, it's helpful to try to get the author's definition the author, oftentimes, through God's sovereign hand, is, is hopefully going to indicate what do you mean by a proper fear of the Lord. So if you flip back um, in chapter 2, when he's rebuking the priests, he actually gives the example of um, when God established his covenant with Levi um, up in verse 4. And he lays out an example of what this covenant looked like. And he says in verse 5, My covenant with him, speaking of Levi, was one of life and peace. 
and I gave them to him. And then he parallels it right after. He says in the same verse, he says, it was a covenant of fear. We just called it life and peace, right? If he's, he's saying this is the same covenant, then fear, the result of a proper fear, is going to be life and peace. So it says, it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. They had a proper view of God. Malachi could be said his greatest burden was for his people to know who God was. That was his greatest burden. He wanted them to see him clearly and respond in fear, in awe of who God is and what he's done. And that the result of that fear, the product of that fear, is life and peace. We see judgment is a result of when you don't fear God. And life and peace is a result of a proper fear of the Lord. And that's an important key for us to get um, in regards to the theme of Malachi and the theme that we see throughout history um, of the Israelite nation. So the people were struggling to fear the Lord. And the fourth section um, that, of the book of Malachi was um, God will send his messenger to prepare for the Messiah's coming. So he's saying judgment is going to come for those who don't fear the Lord and blessing, life, and peace is going to be for those who do fear the Lord. And he actually mentions in chapter 3 a book of remembrance. There were some, there were some in the nation of Israel at this time who responded to this call of repentance and belief in God's future coming. And he points them again to it. He says, um, ironically, in a way to remember it, is Malachi means my messenger, and he actually prophesies of a messenger who's going to prepare the way, right? We see that in the New Testament. Um, he says in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and in chapter 4, uh, both times he mentions um, the actual uh, messenger. In 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then in 4, he says, um, again, in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Judgment and peace are coming. The question is, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? I love the, the contrast, the side-by-side comparison um, at the beginning of chapter 4. So I'll read these verses for us briefly. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go leaping out like calves from the stall. What a beautiful side-by-side comparison of God's plan to glorify his name through the judgment of those who have sinned against him and through the peace and life that he's bringing to those who trust and fear his name. The purpose of uh, Malachi, uh, for kind of some summary statements, is um, as mentioned earlier, Malachi desperately wants the people to have a proper view of God, and we ought to. We ought to take note of that theme, that purpose, that we too need to desperately pursue a proper view of God. How? Through his word. Through his word, we must know who he is. And also we see an irreverence for God that will lead to judgment, whereas the fear of the Lord will lead to life. Key words being fear, as we've mentioned, and the Lord of hosts, to give you the statistic again, 23 times out of 55 verses, this prophet Malachi picks up on this title of the Lord of hosts. And I think even more so in this one versus the other two books, the Lord of hosts also indicates that he is not 
bringing void threats here. He is the Lord of armies of angelic legions. Okay, it's, if he says it's going to happen, this will happen. Take him seriously. Take him seriously. But it's also a comfort to those that were in the book of remembrance, those who are fearing the Lord and trusting his name, that they too will be vindicated. They too will be rescued and saved. So we see here some themes. We see the theme of man's sinful problem remaining in the heart. And we see God's promise remains with his covenant people. We see these parallel ideas continuing throughout the beginning all the way through the Old Testament. And you can even see it as kind of a, a picture for you guys. Is you can see it paralleled in the covenants as well. As you see, the Abrahamic covenant uh, focuses on a blessing, land, seed, and blessing. A blessing to all the nations that you will be specifically in a land. Um, and he will make a great nation out of Abraham. But then even further down the line, we, saw, we see an a emphasis of a king. that They need a leader, a righteous king that we saw in Zechariah, a, a high priest and a king that's going to, to bring about his kingly reign and, and purify his people and, and provide peace and life and restoration to the land. And we see again in the New Covenant an iteration of this need for a priestly king and that there's a heart issue. I will take from you your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. God's solution is good. His plan is sure. And we can trust in him as he accomplishes his mission. And we see that God will reconcile his people to himself. The question I will leave you with is, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God who is faithful to keep all of your promises. God, you have shown it so time and time again throughout all of history that your plans will come to pass. And Lord, we ask for faith. We ask that you would produce in us a trust in you that is unwavering, that is confident and sure that Jesus will come again. And that is hope for us. That is encouragement for us that we can... Um, lean on and be strengthened by as we seek to obey you and walk in obedience and live authentically with the life that you've called us and changed us through your new covenant to be. You've given us new hearts, Lord. Help us to live um, in a way that is um, obedient to you and to the calling that you've placed on us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done and ask that you would bless our worship to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.